Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Josh Avant. Josh is an iOS developer living in Los Angeles. He's been making iOS apps for over five years for big companies, small companies, acquired startups as an indie, and he's even worked at Apple. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hey, Garrick. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice day in Venice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it is a nice day, except, uh, you know, the sun is like, it's like red or the sky is like red. And my fiance and I were like, what's going on? And apparently there's a huge fire like in Santa Cruz Valley area. Is that what it was? I, we, we, my girlfriend and I woke up this morning and we walked outside and I was like, it's, it's like my eyes are blurry or something. Like everything looks orange. It's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bummer. And when I last I read, it was like zero percent contained. So, oh, uh, but that's I guess that's life here in California, yeah. in Southern California. So, <laughs> I don't know. I just hope, I hope everyone's okay over there. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, enough with the morbid stuff. We're just going <laughs> to you know enjoy this this conversation together today. So, uh, this is actually uh, our first time talking. I can't remember exactly how I uh, sort of e-met Josh. I think you put, maybe posted something on Twitter. Yeah, somebody somebody mentioned, I was at WWDC, and I forget who it was, but somebody mentioned, there was like, oh, there's an iOS developer in LA, and he has a podcast. And like, I had thought I sort of had a feel for the scene, and I was like, wait a minute, I've never heard of this guy. And so I, I tweeted at you, and I was like, hey, Garrick, like, I'm an iOS developer in LA too. Let's catch up sometime. And you're like, well, I, I have a podcast. Do you want to come on? <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so great. I honestly don't remember that. I'm so glad you do because, <laughs> no, I just realized, I actually forgot that I like to talk about this on the podcast and I just realized, like, I don't even, I know it had something to do with Twitter because that's usually how I meet everybody. <laughs> that's so cool, man. All right, and then, so yeah, um, you know, Josh hit me up on Twitter. I responded back and because, you know, everyone in the community is super nice, like, here we are and now we're talking for the first time. Yeah. And you're on, you know, you're, you obviously have all this experience and you're here to share that with the community because that's what we do. We give back. So, yeah. So thank you so much. All right. So what are you working on right now, Josh? Um, I'm starting to wrap up a project at my company now. Uh, we, I am building uh, V1 of their app, uh, their very first iOS app. And it's all, all Swift ground up. Um, really excited to put it out there. That's awesome. So are you doing anything uh, interesting in particular? Is there like something that you really liked on that particular project that you did that was maybe new or slightly different that you're really proud of? Yeah, so we're experimenting with, uh, well, not experimenting, we're, we're full on in with MVVM and reactive programming. And it is really exciting. It's like just a whole new dimension of tech, of like design that like, was there an objective C, but like, wasn't so comfortable. But now because of just various aspects of Swift, it's like, it's, it's a lot more easy to use and it's really exciting. You should see my face right now. It's, uh, you know, it's lighting up. I mean, <laughs> I, I briefly mentioned offline that I, we're doing functional reactive MVVM and now to, and, and I didn't, you know, you didn't say anything. Um, cause you know, we weren't talking about that, but then now to hear you say that <laughs> it's like, what? Like, cause I'm looking for people like you to, to talk to this about because there really aren't that many. I mean, I, there's a bunch online. It seems like a lot of them are spread out. I don't really know any in L.A. to now meet you in L.A. And, like, we can really talk about that because I want to do a 
um, functional reactive MVVM like uh, talk um, at my uh, my meetup. Yeah, uh, like I'm just learning it now. Um, man. And so it, it really, it's like, I'm really excited to be learning it, um, at farmers and like, it, it's a different way of programming. It's a different way of thinking. Yes. And it feels so like cutting edge, like we're Christopher Columbus or something. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's brand new. And like one of the things that I really, um, is in, is an interesting feeling for me is like talking with people about it. There's like, there's still no concrete definition established for some of these things. It's like, I do this, I do this too. How do you do it? Oh, that's way different than how I do it. Whereas like back in Objective-C, like everything was a very well-worn path. Like everybody sort of had the way to do things. There was redundant amounts of guides out there saying how to do it. Um, but like now it's like MVVM. Well, what's that? Well, everybody's kind of got their own definition and flavor of MVVM. So that's kind of exciting to me. Yeah, it is because it means that there's, it's kind of scary, but exciting at the same time. Yeah. Because there's almost no right answer. So it's like, well, does that, what do we <laughs> right but then it's like that means you can explore and if something feels like if you're like well i feel like we should just kind of do this and see what happens it's like you have the freedom to do that and no one can really say that you're doing it wrong so give me i'll give you an example i hit up ash for who's like a you know a big yeah, proponent, yeah. a proponent of functional reactive and all that and i'm like what do you do you have thoughts on um a view models being made up of other view models or uh, v VCs have multiple having multiple VMs mm -hmm. or do you know any blog posts about it and he's mm -hmm. like no I have no thoughts on that like you should do a write-up on it <laughs> and I'm like okay so that means like the the one of the bigger dudes like the you know the more well-known dudes in this stuff like doesn't have an a top, uh, an right. Opinion on yeah. That. Like it, it must just be like the Wild West kind of in a way yeah and that's that's like such an exciting feeling like I'm really uh, on a, I've been personally trying to like get my blog up and going because I have so many ideas for like things I want to write about. Like, uh, partially because like it, I feel like there's nothing out there, and partially because like other people have been like, yeah, I've never heard of that. Like, write about it so we can like the conversation can get started. Yeah. So we don't. You know, we're not going to make this the functional reactive MVM <laughs> episode. Maybe we will in the future. But just to kind of just while you're listening, you know, just so you can understand, functional is a way. Uh, I guess it's a style of programming. It's like rather than imperative, which is sort of what we do now mm -hmm. if you're not doing functional. And it's like you just have these functions that take things inside, you know, inside of them and, and, and push things out and they don't change any state inside the body of the function. And then you have reactive, which is instead of like being a consumer, you have these things that send out events and then these other objects just observe those events. And then you have MVVM, which is like all your VCs are backed by this other object that handles all, everything that like getting data from the model, getting data from a service and then like massaging it and then giving it to the, um, you know, the VC and then the VC is just a pure VC, like a table view. All it mm -hmm. does is just do its table view job. Anyways, I, I actually gave a uh, talk called uh, intro to functional reactive programming in Swift at Cocoa Heads LA like three weeks ago. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, if if you search for the Coco Heads LA YouTube channel, I don't I don't have that link handy, but uh, it's there's like three videos on there. One of them is that one. Okay, I will make sure we have a link to that, and I'm definitely gonna watch that. <laughs> All right. So while I'm writing that down, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know how you got to where you are now? Like, how did you get into programming? Were you born with a computer keyboard <laughs> in your hand, or is this something that you picked up more recently? Like, when did you start programming? 
Sure. Uh, I, I, you know, I was thinking about this before we got the, we got on the show, um, and I was thinking all the way back. The first thing I can remember writing was a basic program that just printed something, some line out to the terminal, just literally a print statement. Uh, and it was on my grandparents' Commodore computer, and it was like stored on one of those like floppy disks, like not the the three inch ones I think they were, but like the five inch ones, the big ones. Wait, so how old were you? Oh man, I. If I had to take a wild guess, like seven or eight or something. And where where were you were at your grandpa uh, grandparents' house? Where yeah. was that? Was that in California or? I so I was born and raised in Virginia. Okay, so that was in Virginia. Uh huh. And um, were you always going to your grandparents' house, or is it like a random occasion or? Yeah. So uh, my mother, they would watch me while my mother was at work. Um, okay. And so I spent time over there, and at some point they bought a computer. Do you know um, why? Yeah, I'm trying to remember why. I don't. I think it's just like you know, it's it's up and coming. It's a thing thing to like get into, and so they had one. And I don't think they even used it a whole bunch, but like it ended up like I gravitated towards it, and so like I, I was really lucky in that regard that like sort of they bought one and had one sitting in the corner, and I just gravitated on it. So your grandpa or grandma weren't necessarily computer people or something. No. Oh my goodness. My my grandmother. As recently as like I think like the, as like three or four years ago, uh, she had to go into the UPS store and like they can, they're trying to get people to like use the computers to process things. And she was like dismayed. She was like, "I have no idea how to use this. This is crazy. I can't believe they asked me to use this." Oh, <laughs> uh, it's so good. Okay, so you're at your grandparents' place. You see this computer, and why do you gravitate towards it? I think I was just a kid, and to me it was a toy. It was just like this shiny thing with buttons, and I was like, oh. And then like I realized, hey, if I type like print whatever, then it does things. It does things back to me. Like I can control this thing, and can, we can do things together, kind of. Okay, so let's say you turn it on, and like I don't know, was it like MS DOS or something, or, or uh, it's a Commodore? I, anyway, so okay, so yeah. you, you turn it on. How do you realize you can type print, and then it'll print something? Like, how did you? Was did you just? I mean, who told you that? Did you have to a book? Was there a book? Or? I want, Yeah, I want to say, like, because, of course, this was before, like, the internet where I could just Google, like, how do I make a program? And I want to say, like, maybe there was a book. Like, there was an instruction manual. And somehow I, I, I realized, I just was looking through the manual. And I was like, oh, well, this, like, little, like, s- sequence of steps, if I do all these things, I can, like, make it do things. And I think eventually somehow I pieced it together. And I remember, I remember the print statement I used, too. It was like, this is Josh's first computer program. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so good. Okay, so then let's say you fast forward to high school. Like, what mm-hmm. happened in between? Um, like, let's were you still coding in high school, or like on the side, or like? And then how did that work out? How did it happen in between? Yeah, so I uh, I have memories in high school of like doing PHP websites, consulting. Um, and then I also took an interesting twist into hardware in high school, too, by way of my modding my Xbox. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, just Dave from New York. He was on the ep- uh, podcast a few episodes ago. Uh-huh. That's one of the ways he got into programming was really? modding his Xbox. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So so what was like happening in between? You had, you know, did you just always go to your grandparents' house to like play with the Commodore or did you end up getting like your own computer at home or, or what happened there? Yeah. So to give you sort of like a historical context, like this was about the time AOL was coming up. Okay. And I remember my uncle who would come to visit us kind of regularly, he would have, he had AOL and he had it on his laptop. And so I remember like playing around on AOL and then like learning about like AOL keywords and then I just I just I was always on a computer and just like when AOL sort of started taking 
started like taking root and I guess it was becoming a more common thing. We got AOL at our, at our home. And then, you know, once I had AOL, once I had the internet, like, you know, just it snowballed. <laughs> you said that was your uncle? Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So your uncle comes over one day with a laptop with AOL and mm-hmm. you're like, what is this? And you're like, mom, we, we need this and you get it. And so then what, you're like cruising around on AOL, like accessing your AOL email and instant messenger or something like that. And then how does that lead to getting like, I don't know, how does that lead to getting an Xbox and then figuring out how to mod it? Um, Honestly, I think I'm just like in my younger years and still now, of course, but definitely my younger years, like I didn't have toys. I had computers. So like whatever it was, if it flashed at me the right way or I had the right ability to sort of like program it or control it or do something with it. I was like, I was on it. I was doing it. Like I just, I lived inside. I was just a homebody. <laughs> That's awesome. So then what was, what were you doing? Like, why did you want to mod your Xbox? I can't remember what just Dave wanted to do. I think it was like to get some extra thing or something. I can't remember, but like, why did you want to mod yours? Um, I definitely did not want to mod it because I wanted to copy games. Um, I wanted uh, to mod <laughs> Why? What, what happens there? What were people doing? Um, I think like the takeaway of it, what I, well, actually, I want to say maybe the reason why I started was I, Blockbuster had this like summer of games thing where you could like, it was like a pass, like a monthly subscription and you could just go in and just like cycle through games. And then okay. on the side I read, oh, well, if you have a mod chip, you can copy games. And I was like, and I was like, like jackpot. <laughs> like, like burn them or copy them to the hard drive of the Xbox? Yeah, the back then they had it down where you could copy them to the hard drive. Wow. So like you could just like, so the idea, was, you know, on this message board or whatever I was on, wherever I got this idea from, you bought this big fat hard drive, which I think at the time was like 120 gig hard drive okay. at like 5,400 RPM. Um, and then you go to Blockbuster, get a game, copy it to the hard drive and then just like keep, make, keep making round trips to Blockbuster all day. And then, okay. you, like, for basically nothing, you had a whole library of games. Wow. Okay, so you're, what was, like, your game that you were super into at first, like, that got you into Xbox? I, th- I think it's hard to deny the... Halo? The, the draw, yeah, the draw yeah, of Halo. <laughs> totally, right? Like, and then, like, that one where you could be really high up with that sniper rifle and, like, pick people yep. up. <laughs> okay, so then, like, how does, like, being really into Xbox, like, where did you find this, like, forum where you could, like, learn how to mod? Like, that's, like... You just, I guess, the internet, right? And you're just like, oh, this looks cool. And one yeah. thing leads to another. There was, there was this website called Xbox Scene. Okay. Um, and they had a forum. And then yeah, everything was there. It was, and, and, like, it was like, um, it was like, you know, it was nerd porn. That's <laughs> it was, awesome. It was, like, pictures of, like, motherboards. It's, like, solder here. Like, rip, rip this open and, like, solder right here and look for this chip. And I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> so did the Xbox, modding the Xbox lead into your interest in hardware or was that the interest in hardware or did you like do other hardware stuff like in high school, I think you said? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Uh, okay. from, from the Xbox modding, um, I ended up going into computer engineering, which is sort of like the hardware centric flavor of the computer sciences okay. uh, in college. And then that actually also is sort of the bridge to my first job at Apple, which was in hardware. And so that, that little Xbox modding experience sort of like guided me for many years and still, you know, has still in the back of my mind. I still love hardware. Wait, so your first job at Apple or your first job, which was at Apple? Both. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, right. Wait, did you work at Apple twice? Um, they were my first, they were my first full-time job out of college. Like I graduated and, and started working at Apple full-time. Wow. That's so cool. Okay. So let's talk about high school real quick and then let's talk about college and then getting into Apple. So like 
were you focused on computers and programming in high school? Uh, yeah, I, I was doing, um, I remember doing like PHP websites for like extra money. <laughs> okay. How did you get into that? Um, how did I, 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 you know, I think we like, for whatever reason, all my buddies, we like, I remember in grade school, right before high school, we like, we were making websites. Like we, we all, for whatever reason, at some point thought it was cool to have a website. And it was maybe like the same feeling as like owning a blog. It was just sort of like our personal outlet on the internet. Right. But then I kept going with it. Like, like all my buddies made websites and it was fun. And then I think like a couple summers later it sort of died, but I was still like, I was still doing it. And then I learned, I went from HTML to like PHP and I was like, oh, now I can make websites that are like dynamic and like do stuff and just kind of kept going. So up until that point, what, like, what computer languages did you know? I mean, it sounds like, it, did you say Commodore was in basic or something? Is that what you said? Yeah, that was just what I played with just to like print something to the terminal. Okay. And then high school was like HTML, just okay. like very early, like HTML1, I guess. Um, like in the marquee tag and all that old stuff. Okay. Um, and then, and then P PHP. Yeah, PHP. Wow, okay. So did you... I guess in high school, you don't graduate like with a degree or anything, right? It's just like you graduate with a high, but then yeah. you're really interested in computers. So did you go to college like knowing you were going to study computers? Yeah, absolutely. There was no question. Okay. So you, I think I read on your website, you went to Virginia Tech? Yep. Yep. Okay. So you go to Virginia Tech, you're studying computer science with an emphasis in computer engineering? Uh, computer engineering it, like itself was its own degree. Oh, okay. Did you focus on programming at all? I'm assuming um, you had to do a little bit, right? To like, yeah, I describe computer engineering as like 70% CS, 30% EE. So it was like it was like mostly compu computer science. Like I didn't get like operating systems and like kernel development, uh, but I would like have circuits class in place of that. Wow, that's so cool, man. <laughs> so do you still do like electrical engineering and that kind of hardware kind of stuff? Like make gaming PCs and stuff? Um, I don't. I really, I really wish I had more time to do that. Um, I'm, all, I'm, like, I'm really inspired by like the, the Raspberry Pi movement and the DIY movement. Um, right. So I wish I had more time. And stuff. Yeah. Totally. I feel <laughs> you on that. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll like hack around. Maybe you can show us how to do something one day yeah. at a meetup or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure there's like some starter packs that make it easy to get going. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're in college, you are focusing on hardware engineering. How does that uh, lead, how does that lead to, was it a job or an internship at Apple, or how does that lead to a job at Apple? Um, I sent them my resume. I mean, um, for me, it's just like, oh, like how do, you, <laughs> how do you get a job at Apple, you know? So yeah, how did that work out for you? I actually, I'll give you, I'll give you a scoop that I haven't really talked about much, but um, <laughs> I've told my friends, and they, they seem to get a kick out of it. So how I got a job at Apple was I actually at the time this I think this was a maybe in and around when the four hour work week started okay. and his Tim Ferriss whole thing is like hiring like a virtual assistant. So I actually <laughs> oh. I actually hired somebody to go through all of the openings all like a specific list of openings. It was probably like 50 or 100 or something on Apple's website and I was like send my application send my resume in and then Believe it or not, one day somebody called me back and like, hey, we're calling you about the resume you put in on the website at Apple. We want to schedule you for an interview. And I was just like, oh my, I had to ask them like which one it was because I didn't, I didn't know because the virtual assistant put my resume in for all of them. For all of them, like didn't, it wasn't just hardware specific. You put them in for anything or what? Was there like a limit to like, did you apply for sales jobs? 
No, no, no. It was def- it was all hardware jobs, but a lot of them were like way outside of like my league, like like three to five years of experience. And I was like just graduating college, but I was like whatever, like just add it to the list, and then the virtual assistant can run through and like submit my resume for all of them. Wow. Okay, so you get this <laughs> phone call, you figure out which job, and then what happens? How do you do? You go fly over to Palo Alto or where Cupertino to like interview, or how does that work? Yeah, it was really crazy. Like this was to set the stage. This was 2010 when like unemployment was like really high. A lot of my friends were getting out with like zero job prospects, and I actually I walked the graduation stage without the job, but I was but I had arrangements the Sunday after like my Friday walking the stage to fly out to California from Virginia and interview in Cupertino, um, and one thing led to another, and I was very lucky uh, to to land the job out of college at Apple, and um, yeah. Uh, what was the what was like the role or specifically? It was like a junior hardware engineer or something, or so I was I was actually device QA. So I was I was it, it was like honestly it was a dream job coming out of college. I literally was testing iPhones and iPads all day. Wow. Wait, <laughs> like the ones that were about to be released, or yeah, they they were the ones that were um, not released yet too. Wow. So like iPhone, I don't know, four or something mm-hmm. like that. It's August. Mm-hmm. It's not even out yet, and you're like testing it. Yeah. Wait, but you couldn't see it, right? They have it like under a cover. So we were, and then even and better. Are you, are you allowed to talk about this? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, we were. I'll just say we were part of a team that like we didn't have restrictions. Like we got full access to the device. Wow. So wait, you were like you not you, but like your colleague was like the one who left the device at the bar and like that big like whole thing for instance. Uh, I didn't know him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know him. <laughs> no so no weird. comment, no comment. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Okay, so so you moved from Virginia to Cupertino, right? Like, mm-hmm. did they help with that at all, or how does that work? Like, did they help? Because I've I've heard of like relocation assistance and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Do they do anything like that? Yeah, there. I remember vividly. Like, um, my parents had like saved some furniture for me, which was in a storage unit near our house. Um, and just one day, a moving truck, a big, huge, like tractor trailer moving truck, pulled into this like tight little store. You know, it's tight, tight, tight roads in this little storage unit, and all my stuff was loaded up on there, and then I had a plane ticket, a one-way plane ticket, and then I showed up in California, and all of it was unloaded. <laughs> what? They took care of the moving for you, too? Yeah. It, w- it was crazy. It was, like, a super generous budget. Like, I remember thinking, like, I could have moved, like, a family, and, yeah. Wow, like, concierge service. It seems like a really <laughs> awesome place to work. Okay, so did you live in Cupertino? I had corporate housing in Cupertino until I could find an apartment, which I did in uh, like the downtown San Jose area, and I lived there for a year. Wow, so they have like corporate housing where they put people up until they can find a place. Yeah. Was there like a time limit? Did you have to find a place within like three months or something? I think that was the limit. I think it was like three months maybe. Okay. Was it hard to find a place? Uh, no, no. So is that far, downtown San Jose, to, to wherever your job was? I want to say it was like maybe a 20, 30-minute drive, so it wasn't bad. Okay, so you ha- you, draw- you got a car or whatever. You drove yeah. your car out there. Okay, and then like did you work at you know, one infinite loop or was there like a separate off-site area? I worked, I worked right across the street from one infinite loop in uh, Mariani 1. Okay, that's super cool. Um, <laughs> I've been to one infinite loop just like outside and took a picture like by the sign. Mm-hmm. And then like one day I was like testing um, – 
you know, like when you submit an app to the app store, the there's like they have testers. You have to give them a login and everything, right? right. And they, they have testers. Well, my app was like a location based app, so like I'm like seeing where the tester is. I'm like, <laughs> this doesn't seem right. Like, am I allowed to do this? I felt like kind of bad. Yeah, um, is that like a normal thing? Um, I don't know. I I feel like a lot of some developers try tricks. I do remember back in way back in the day. I want to say it was like Flurry or something, and like. Steve Jobs got really angry because like somebody did that and somebody like detected based on the GPS, the testers in Cupertino and then changed the behavior of the app. And I think Steve Jobs was like furious about it. And I remember they like they banned something for some amount of time. And oh, wow. I, I, rem- I remember that way back in the day. That's interesting. OK, so you're at Apple just like in a sentence or two. What's that experience like just being an employee, like not like a retail employee, but like an employee at the corporate, like, and on on a technical team too. Like, what's that like? Because I don't know. Looking forward, that could be a dream. I think. Like, imagine working at the new Apple campus too. Yeah. Like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. So, what was that like? Um, it was really phenomenal. I mean, everybody there, like, really truly believes they're like changing the world. Like, just the most inspiring like colleagues. Um, uh, nothing, nothing is off limits. Like everybody's just so passionate, so driven and so smart. Like it was just real. It was honestly, it was a humbling experience. Like I just couldn't believe I was surrounded by like such caliber of people. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Okay. So how does that lead to iOS development? I mean, you said you were doing, you had done PHP. That was kind of the last time we were talking about programming mm-hmm. and then you were doing all this hardware focused stuff and now you're a QA tester. How does this lead to more programming and more into eventually iOS development? Yeah, so this was this was in uh, 2011. Startup scene in the Bay Area was just starting to come back from like the mini crash of 2008, and um, there, it, it, you know, it was getting hot, and like the place to be was like startups. And there was this one startup. They caught some buzz, and they wanted to hire a Rails developer. And I'd heard about Rails, and I, like I was like, I know PHP. Maybe I could figure out Rails. And so I put my resume in with them. Um, and they were like, okay, here's a Rails project to do. And I furiously spent the weekend doing it despite not knowing any Rails. And somehow, some way, they accepted me. And then, boom, I was a software developer. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, what did you, I mean, you had to do a lot of learning then, right? Like, I mean, you didn't know Rails, right? So, you had to kind of like pick it up, or what did you do? Yeah, I remember it was a, it was a weekend of furious coding. I was just like, morning to night, like late night, like just trying to figure out rails and hack something together. So I'm doing a little bit of um, Android in the sense I'm like reviewing. I'm doing code review, like Uh extreme programming, right? We do code review uh, for all our MRs and I do code review on the Android team. Android team does code review for us. And so I'm reading, uh, you know, Android files and Java files and all that stuff. And like, I'm starting to pick up on Java. It's like kind of like Swift. It just has like more words yeah, and, yeah. And, and more symbols, right? <laughs> but then like the there's a level of learning curve to understand how you develop for a platform. And so you right. have a presenter and you have an activity and you have an adapter for mm. Android. And so how did you, I mean, it's one thing to just learn Rails, but I guess you didn't really have to, because you already knew how to develop for the web maybe. So you didn't really have to worry about that or... Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of common terminology. I, I at least had like a little bit of a leg up knowing like what a controller is and like what this is. Um, so I, I, if I had to take a guess, a lot of that weekend was spent learning, learning exactly what you described, sort of like the specific terminology to Rails. Okay, 
So then how long were you doing that for, like the Rails stuff? Well, so it's funny. I, I started there as a Rails developer. I was hired as a Rails developer, uh, worked there for like a week or two, and then they were like, they had, a, they had an iOS, they had a firm they were consulting with for the iOS app, but they weren't too happy with them. And then they were like, uh, we need an iOS developer. Do you want to be an iOS developer instead? <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Oh, that's great. Oh, man. So then what did you, I guess you said yes. Like, what did you do? Yeah, I, I dived in. And um, I, the rest is kind of history. Like, I dived in, um, really loved the platform, loved the environment, loved the the sort of the people I interacted with and, like, the, the bar of quality. And then... Five years later, here I am. <laughs> so this was like 2011, maybe mm -hmm. by the time you accepted the iOS developer position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're still, you know, you're doing Objective C. I don't mm -hmm. know what is that like iOS five. Yeah, six? it was like four three had was was the la was the last major like the last version that we were working on. Okay, and then so, five just came out. So from your perspective, and and now actually. But even at that time, like, what was sort of like your initial thought? It sounds like you were like, oh, this is cool. This is a cool platform. Because for me, I don't know that much about web development or Android development. But everything I kind of see or hear, it just seems like it's not as streamlined or tightly integrated. For With being an Apple developer, mm -hmm. from the education all the way to literally getting your paycheck because you put an app in the app store mm -hmm. is totally integrated. It's totally oh, yeah. seamless. And to me, that's attractive. Maybe there's downsides. I don't know. But uh, to me, I, it seems like the best platform to develop for since you have some other experience. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned integrated because coming from the hardware background, um, I sort of that's what I that's that's what sort of wowed me about it was like I was thinking like um, I was thinking in terms of like interrupts and uh, you know all I, like I was I was looking at the iPhone as sort of like a hardware device and I was like wow like Apple wraps all this stuff in this very like high level API it's easy to use like I just came from like programming microchips and like if I want to observe something I have to set up an interrupt and then I have to like you know, raise the signal on the lines and then acknowledge it, you know, very low level stuff. And like, I was like, this is all like very tightly integrated and done well. And like, I don't have to worry about this. I just like create and it's all done for me. The cool, like the, the hard stuff is done for me. I think that's a interesting point. It kind of makes me realize when you're doing web development, you're developing for a web browser. There's right. some, there's some hardware things you could take advantage of. Uh, maybe I'm not too, too sure, but, mm. but for the most part, like even on the web browser on the mobile device, I think you might be able to pick, you, you can do location, um, you might be able to pick photos and like do some stuff like that. But when you're programming for the iPhone, you're pro programming for the whole device, not just a web browser. And I didn't think about that just until now. Um, and, and it was always, I was always thinking like, wait, I'm, I'm not a computer programmer. I'm programming an iPhone. I want to know what it's like to program hardware but then I'm like wait that's what I'm doing I'm programming this like <laughs> computer okay anyways so yeah that's something I, I think about a, a lot and I really I don't know it gets me so excited like how tightly integrated like the development experience is um, okay so you're doing iOS development since about it sounds like 2011 mm -hmm. uh, do you remember when Swift comes out I mean at this point <clears throat> you're doing Objective-C for say three years maybe mm -hmm. or three and a half years and then Swift comes out. What was, do, do you remember like, do you watch the, the keynotes and stuff like that? Do you remember like being there or, or yeah. listening to oh, the yeah. announcement? 
Yeah. Um, I remember thinking, um, oh man, <laughs> everything just changed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I remember the, like the, the, the feelings I took away, I was like, wow, we just witnessed the full weight and power of the world's biggest company and technology company uh, going behind a new way of doing things. And I'm like, that's huge. Like that's, that's going to change everything. Wow. <laughs> wow. So for me, I didn't have that perspective because I just I wasn't really that into programming at that programming at the time. So I didn't uh -huh. really know. I was just really excited because I'm like, wow, this this is like me. This is like saying we're not just selling devices or software. Mm -hmm. We're we're creating another product, which is a language, a computer language, which eventually I realized is being a developer. Like we're selling this idea of yeah. being a developer. And I'm like this is really cool. But I was like scouring the internet to understand like the implications of that. And to hear you say that, that's, that's really interesting. So <laughs> what did you do? Did you have, were you like, oh, but I'm an objective C developer, screw that. Or were you like, this is dope. I'm going to check this out. I was excited. Um, but I, you know, typical, like typical legacy support mindset right. or, you right. know, tip, you know, things, things are going to change slowly. Like I can't just like drop my whole, like redo my whole app right now. Right. I think, I think of the time, I forget, where was I working? I want to say maybe living social. Um, I was like, there's no way we could just scrap the whole app and rewrite it. So I was like, all right, well, I'm, you know, like, 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 like every new iOS release, I'll give it a year and, you know, I'll keep an eye on it, but I'll give it a year until, you know, it'll be a year until I really dig into this like full force. Right. I feel like even now people who have been developing, um, apps in Swift, they're going to have a slight sort of growing pain because mm -hmm. of Swift 3 is so big, like breaking changes. All I hear is breaking changes, breaking changes. <laughs> Hopefully the migrator is good. But like at, um, it, we're thinking like, oh, we're using some third-party libraries. Like what's going to happen with those? Are we going to have yeah. to wait for them to get updated? Are we going to have to update them ourselves? Like, so it's totally understandable. Um, okay, so Swift comes out. Uh, do you go and just start checking it out? Do you read the documentation? Do you start playing around with it? Or did you wait a little while? Um, I waited a little while, um, didn't really play with it too much. I wanted to, but my, you know, my full-time job was keeping me busy. Right. Um, and then I had the opportunity, the, I mean, amazing luck. Um, I got in touch with CrowdRise. They, uh, they were like, listen, we have no app whatsoever. Uh, we want to build version one. It's going to be all you. Uh, and I was like, all right, time to go all in on Swift. <laughs> wow. So when was that? This was, um, it was the last WWC, around like WWC 2015, so okay. June, July-ish. Okay, rad. So what was that like? Uh, like? How did you go about learning it? What did you do? For me, I'm a very like practical, I think they say kinesthetic or something like that, mm -hmm. learner. Like I got to kind of do and, and really see it as opposed to just like read. How did you go about learning it? What did you do? So we, so, you know, generics were obviously new to us iOS developers. We didn't have them in Objective-C. Um, and so, uh, as well, it was, it was convenient that Crowderize, before I got in touch with them, already had um, a two or three month engagement lined up with Pivotal, the consulting agency. Oh, wow. Awesome. So, uh, and the guy, like, so I started and basically we had them contracted to sort of just like lay the groundwork really quickly and like get rolling and hopefully not waste a lot of time on like, you know, the routine stuff of setting up a new project. Um, but they also brought to the table, I, I worked with a, a really uh, great developer, 
Aaron, and um, he brought to the table some like background knowledge of generics and from other languages. He was definitely a polyglot, had lots of experience in, in other languages. And so he sort of made that transition nice and smooth and got and definitely like, you know, we were able to like make forward progress despite my not knowing. So I was able to learn for a little bit and then I was sort of like on my own two feet and then took it from there. And I've just been like really studying it, you know, every day as, as I'm working on it. I mean, so you came with all this experience as an iOS developer. So you had a lot of experience with, you know, the first party frameworks and, and libraries or mm -hmm. frameworks. And then you probably had experience with other libraries on Objective-C. So I'm sure like that was really helpful. And then you have experience with all these different languages. Swift is in a difficult language, right? So I'm sure you picked it up pretty quickly. Um, what What's the generics thing? I mean, I know what generics are, but why do you keep, uh, why did you mention that a couple times? Was that really important for your guys' uh, application? Yeah. Or, or was I, it just something like so different, so new or? Um, it, it was so different and so new. And like, um, I, I feel like you could kind of tell with Swift that like Apple was like, hey, uh, here's some new things that are really important. We believe they're really important. Uh, you should, we're going to build them into Swift as a first class feature and you should get to know them. And to me, generics sort of felt like that. And so I was like, I don't know anything about generics, but I feel like I should. <laughs> so I tried hosting a Learn Swift LA meetup on generics. Mm -hmm. And one of our members, Lasha, came by and tried teaching us. And pretty much what we learned is that generics are hard, or at least hard to teach. Um, yeah. It's like, how do you, you, it's like hard to have an example to show generics. Um, but we, we do some generics in um, the, our functional programming that we're doing, like just have these generic functions that take in something and return something else, uh -huh. right? Um, so I don't have that much experience. I have but, a good example. Okay, go ahead. Um, so actually, I just did this. Uh, I have, I set up some uh, protocols and um, actually, that's more of a protocols. Uh, so actually, different, <laughs> different example. I have, um, I have uh, some persistence generics. And so basically by changing the, uh, the associated type on something, you can sort of like change where something is like saved to. So if you want to save something to the keychain or the NS user defaults, it's a matter of like changing the type and then the whole thing works differently. That's because you're sort of composing uh, different behavior from different implementations uh, on, you know, at the part of the process where you're persisting. Interesting. So, so this, this widget knows how to, it adheres to this protocol uh, this generic protocol, it knows how to persist in the user defaults. And then this thing knows how to persist in the keychain. And then this other thing takes one of those guys and then just says, hey, here you go, save it. And so now, you know, because we're leveraging the, the generic behavior of, of the language, uh, it's, a, it's as simple a matter as just swapping out, you know, the first two widgets and then, you know, the, the, this third widget works differently, saves in a different place. So for someone who maybe is just um, starting out or they only have, let's say, six months experience or something like that, would you say it's something they should start looking at or maybe wait till, you know, uh, they have another, I guess when they're ready maybe. But like for me, I didn't focus on that kind of stuff. At least I didn't put pressure on myself to have to learn that stuff. What, what do you think? Do you think that's more of an advanced feature or do you think it's like a critical feature for Swift? Um, I think it's an advanced feature. Um I think um, I subscribe to the idea of um, don't make the wrong trap. Like, du uh, I don't I don't know the nice catchphrase, but long story short, it's uh, duplication is better than the wrong abstraction. Oh, nice! I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like don't build something bad. You can always go back and refactor and optimize things better. Like I, I would rather copy. I would rather do something 
in a more verbose, more redundant, less optimal way if it refactors cleanly into like the better one versus trying my hand at something I can't handle and I doing do, it wrong. I totally agree with that. So let's say we do a lot of pairing and uh, we follow um, previously implemented patterns. Mm -hmm. And we, so we start implementing um, a function or whatever a certain way. We're starting to hook up our pipes in a certain way because we're copying it. Mm -hmm. And we don't entirely know like how this thing's working or maybe it's not working because we're doing it slightly different. So I'll say, let's just stop. Let's just do this in the most verbose, long form way. Yes. And like understand, like understand, like what each thing is doing, and then let's refactor. I totally agree. Yeah, and and, and I guess to to bring that full circle to generics, I'd say uh, focus on learning. Focus on learning to do things right, and then generics will always be there, and they'll you know they'll always be able to re. Ideally, you'll be able to refactor cleanly into generics when the time is right. So you said you were working out of Pivotal Labs. Uh, mm -hmm. I was, I'm at Farmers right now. We were working at a Carbon 5, and they were consulting us, and they were on our team. We were learning mm -hmm. extreme programming. Were you, I, I believe Pivotal also um, yeah. does extreme programming. So were you also learning that as well? Yeah, we paired for the whole, I think, three, two, three months that we were um, consulting with them. Were you also doing TDD? Yes, yeah, we do TDD. Awesome. So test-driven development, for those that might not know, uh, just like starting out again, another thing I did not worry about, like writing tests. But I remember a couple um, dub dubs where like Apple starts talking about testing technologies and how we should test. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like another thing I need to learn. But uh, once I realized I had this opportunity to you know work at Farmers and do TD, I was like, yeah, I want to life learn changing. This. Yeah, and then I then then I I'm like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I had a little bit of experience with with test tests but like um now that i understand it it's like wow i can't imagine not writing tests it's like one of the things i love about it is uh so we use a thing called quick and nimble mm -hmm. uh brian gesiak i think yeah. gesiak okay and anytime let's say uh, a new person comes we hire a new person and they want to learn our application i tell them go read the test check right? the test out yeah right because our tests describe and what object uh, each object does it's just awesome so are you doing testing right now or is it something that you kind of just have in your back pocket or are you like uh, what's your like ability with testing yeah we so pivotal it sounds like pivotal follows the same strategy that carbon five uh and you guys are doing i believe um, so pair programming well i mean we're not doing pair programming because i'm the only developer but uh we did at pivotal so we had experience with it um, but t TDD, test driven development, and yeah, we do any any new um, like business logic functionality. We do. I, we have a QA department that does our integration testing. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure there's definitely we could definitely do some like uh, integration testing of our own. But for now, for V1 of the app, while we're getting sort of established. Uh, they do the bulk of the integration. They're actually writing automated integration testing on their end. So when you say integration testing, do you mean like continuous integration? Um, not continuous, just like, um, I mean, I guess it, it would be continuous if we hooked it up so that like every, every commit or every milestone was tested. But right. this is more just like in general, like whenever, whenever we have sort of a, a presentable build, they'll, the QA will take over and then start doing their own automated tests. Oh, okay, cool. So you're doing unit tests and UI tests, or just unit tests? Okay, cool. Yeah, UI testing is it's good. There's definitely like a lot of benefits to it, but I feel like I don't it's know. Hard. Maybe yeah, I just I'm not sure. Maybe I don't understand it fully because like for instance, right now we're trying to test that uh, a word 
amongst a, a, a bunch of other words inside mm-hmm. a UI label is clickable. And it's okay. like Apple doesn't really support that for in a, in a first party uh, way, yeah. right? To like, unless it's like a hyperlink or a link or whatever. And yeah. so I hit up this guy, Joe Mazliotti, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. He's like, uh-huh. he's like the UI unit test guy. He knows all about it. Um, and he, he's telling me to get down to the coordinate level. Uh, and I'm like, what, man? That just seems like so. <laughs> a- anyways, but uh, I like UI testing because it's just, you don't have to log in every time, right? It like logs in for you. You can, right. it does like the, this automated clicks, this button clicks that button, which can kind of take a long time. My, my, like my answer to that is like, I, I do, I do like, I'm still, I'm still like working on this theory and, and so far I like it, but like I do unit testing or I, I, I XC test for what that's worth. Uh, the parts of the UI that if broken would block the user or, uh, break the app effectively. So like if there's some possibility, for example, of a, uh, a view covering the screen and like the user has to like force quit the app to like get out of that state, I'll go ahead and, and throw a quick little basic test in there to make sure like it doesn't happen, it's covered. Um, but otherwise I kind of stay away from like general UI testing. How would you do something like that? For, uh, for example, uh, when I was developing our login screen, I was developing against like a six, an iPhone six. Mm-hmm. But then when we were doing a uh, QA testing on an iPhone five, they noticed that they couldn't click a button because the, yeah. the keyboard was blocking it. So how do you test for that in a UI test? Um, we that's not something I think I've tested on. Okay. Yeah. Well, so so for an example of like what you said, like blocking the user, like how do you? Because like I I noticed like. I don't know. There was like a thing where I'm, I'm testing, hey, can you see, like, is it displaying this element? And the element is actually behind another element, so you can't see it, but it was still passing. Yeah. I'm like, huh, that's weird. So I think maybe like the UI testing framework is just not fully like fleshed out. Yeah, it's hard. And it's hard too if your UI is like changing a lot. Uh, we're, we're rolling V1 and we're doing all kinds of like UI changes. So I feel like on an app where your UI might be static, then it's sort of, not not static, but like it's not gonna change drastically in the near future. Maybe that makes sense to start working on your UI test, but it's, 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 it's for me in my head, it's hard to justify if your UI is changing a lot. Cause it, it, it's inherently a certain amount of hard, kind of like you described. Okay. So let's see, what else are you, is there anything else like, uh, for instance, are you doing protocol oriented programming? Are you like, uh, va- um, starting with value types like structs and enums versus classes. Are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned protocol-oriented programming on the heels of testing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure as you, as you know why. <laughs> yeah, right. It makes it easier to test for mocking, right? Right, exactly. So we'll have, I try to make every dependency that we sort of, every dependency that's injected uh, is uh, Let's behind Let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. So dependency injection. I remember someone was telling me about it, and it's just like, uh, what is it? Veronica Ray says it's a $5 word for a 10-set concept. Or something yeah. like, okay, so, and that's how it seemed to me. Like, uh, Mariana, she would tell me about Maria Linitis. She was at Pivotal. She's mm-hmm. at Thrive. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Think I, I think I uh, crossed paths with her there. Yeah, and she would tell me about DI. She would talk about it, and I'm just like, yep, nodding my head. I'm like, I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. Okay, so, basically, you are giving... The, you're giving your object all its dependencies at the time it's constructed, um, mm-hmm. or you can do property injection, mm-hmm. but like still kind of at the time like it's being constructed. So like inside, let's say the initializer of a view controller, you're not really creating all of the objects that it, it relies on. At least the um, 
I would say like the main dependencies that maybe, uh, yeah, like what's like, I don't know, but like what the sort of, it's like, it's like, it can create its own label. It can create its own, or I guess if you would do that. Right. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I, I would say like, it's like you create this sort of like global space. I mean, for lack of a better term and to oversimplify a little bit, like a global space and this like this layer that wraps the whole application knows like assign these properties to this thing or give this initializer these properties. And this separate layer that wraps everything uh, gives every object in your app sort of what it needs. And then every object in your app doesn't ever do like self.foo.bar.whatever. You're only like, ideally, you're only accessing all the stuff that's inside of it. You know right, what I mean? Right. But, and that's, I guess that's one way of doing dependency injection. That's how we're doing it. We're using Swinject and we have this yeah. app container and we're registering and resolving mm-hmm. and all that. Um, but in some places where it's just like a small little view controller, we might just do the the dependency, like the constructor and property injection, just like right in line, like right before we push it or something mm-hmm. like that, because it's just like a small view. Okay, yeah. anyways, so that's dependency injection in uh, maybe two minutes. You were talking about protocols in mocking and testing. Yeah, and then, um, so you were saying like uh, other Swifty features I'm doing, protocols. Right. Um, and yeah, we're doing that. Like for example, like I, I throw protocols in everything. Right. Uh, for example, like right now I'm implementing a feature where we need to pop out to Safari, and you know the call you're going to use is like UI application, shared application, open URL. Okay. Uh, but I, I have a protocol called URL openable. I put Interesting. it. Uh, I put so I, when my DI container resolves UI application, uh, or actually it could even just resolve the URL openable type, and then and then. The, uh, the handler for that will deliver the shared application. Uh, that gets injected, and then, um, so I'm literally calling, I have like, a, I think the property is named like Safari URL opener or something. Cool. Um, and it's of type URL openable. URL openable defines one function called open URL, and then I extend UI application to conform to that, which it naturally already does. Um, and then the cool thing, because now I'm now now my view controller only knows about this protocol. Right. So um, I I can test it now. I can put something else that's URL openable, and in test that's going to be a mock object, which is going to you know set a boolean if that's called. So I just make sure the function gets called. I check for the boolean, and boom. Now because everything's behind protocols, everything's that much more testable. So are you saying that you're testing your view controller? Um, if I wanted, I, I guess that might be a bad example because I probably wouldn't write a test for that. But if I did want to, uh, that's how that would work. Because that's what I keep hearing is like, we're, if we're, if, I don't know, we just shouldn't be testing our view controllers because that's Apple's thing, I guess. And like, so for us, we're yeah. testing our, our view models and we're testing yeah. our services and that's pretty much it. Yeah, no, I agree. That, admittedly, that was probably a bad example. No, but, no, no, no. I, yeah. I'm actually curious because if because I have heard of people testing view controllers and views, and like I want to know like if you're doing that, how and why, and like maybe we should be doing that, you know? Because it like I'm not entirely sold on the idea that we don't need to or shouldn't be testing our view controllers and, and views. And like um, where I learned it, they were saying, well, that's what UI tests are for. But I, I'm right. pretty sure I, I've heard of people testing view controllers and views. Yeah, um, I like I might or might I as far as testing view controllers and views, I, I look at that with like sort of the pragmatic lens. Like, okay. and, and that pragmatic lens probably is along the definition that I gave earlier of like, if will it break something important? Like, if this breaks, how important is it? 
Right. Um, and unless the bar is really high, like we're talking like needs the force quit or breaks very significant functionality. Like this is, this is for a very core feature of the app. So I would never want it to break. So I might write like a single basic test to make sure that, you know, this thing pops out to Safari. Um, but in general, I probably wouldn't test, you know, like a fade or, you know, even just like a weird alignment or something. I just, just, just the functionality in right. it pragmatically. So, so really we test our, I think we call it business logic. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we're, we're testing too. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I didn't, I mean, it's just all this stuff like MVVM is also makes it easier to test, right? Because now you have your view model mm -hmm. stuff is separate from the view controller. So now you could just test that separate. Um, and it's just super cool. Oh, man. <laughs> Exciting time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have like maybe 10 minutes left and I, I feel like I've been doing this stuff recently, so it's very fresh in my mind. And to hear that you're doing it too, like I want to focus on that. Yeah. But I want to get back to some, maybe some more Swift stuff. So like, let's talk about a couple of things, like just straight up Objective-C versus Swift. Like, what are your thoughts? Swift is winning my heart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, I just, I like like, now that Swift is all static and it's all, um, everything's like, you know, there's no more, there's a lot less dynamic dispatch. And then by that, I mean, like, um, uh, sort of like you, you can't, the compiler doesn't know where things are going to go. There's like some level of indirection to figuring out how things are going to work. I like that a lot about Swift a lot better than Objective-C. Wait, meaning that the, com like the, the type safetyness, like the staticness of it? Yeah. Like, okay. So, so like in Objective-C, we could always do something like, um, perform selector and pass a string. And the reason why that all worked was because uh, functions were like, functions were to oversimplify like a list of strings. And then you just say like, when you call a function, you're looking up a string in a table and wow. then like that function, calling that function. Uh, Swift, that's all, that, th there's none of that. There's, there's not that level of indirection in the middle. You like, it's, it's statically, I don't know all the compiler lingo and how it all works, but I know like at compile time, you know, Whereas compared to that last example, at runtime, you could change the value of that table and then that string goes to something else now, you know? And that's the difference between dynamic and static. And I, I remember recently, I think iOS Dev Weekly um, linked to like some kind of, not a controversy, but like a discussion or a debate mm -hmm. about some people like complaining that Swift wasn't dynamic or dynamic enough or mm -hmm. something like that. Did you hear about any of that? I, I didn't, I heard about it, but I didn't read it. Okay, but that maybe is sort of what you're kind of getting at? Yes, yeah. But it sounds like you like the the safe, I mean, to me, it's like a safety thing. Like mm -hmm. the compiler knows I'm expecting a foo or I'm expecting a bar or I'm expecting any object or a string and like, and it's like safe, right? Because, uh, yeah. you know, the compiler will complain. And actually, to me, the compiler like teaches you it's like it's yeah. making your code better and like man it, it does a good job like the compiler like compiler is my friend <laughs> compiler makes me safe <laughs> yeah yeah okay cool so what about coming from objective c and then going to swift besides like you were you were telling us about generics and um, your work with aaron mm -hmm. um was there anything that was super easy that came natural was there anything that was really hard that you, you know you really had to focus on coming from objective c I want to say hard at, at first was like the idea of optionals. Right. I remember getting tripped up about that because it's like such a core feature and it's everywhere. And like, I feel like if you don't figure that out early, 
you're like you're gonna hit you're gonna hit it like you're gonna you hit optionals like every five seconds when you're developing Swift. Right. So like until you really get get down what optionals are, how they work, and how you should handle them, which takes some time. Um, it was sort of like it was difficult. It felt like. Uh, so would you say that you have the hang of it now? I think so. And now that you have the hang of it, do you feel like oh, it's actually not that big of a th- uh, not big, but like complicated or hard to understand? I think optionals themselves aren't complicated, but it's one of those things. In, in my opinion, it's one of those things in programming where like there can be it can be design dependent, and like you can sort of subtly and implicitly express certain things by like the presence of optionality, which that that can get like murky. Interesting. All right, I like that. Like okay. like like, do you make optional or do you make it throw? When do you want to do the difference, you know? So I haven't got into the whole throw thing. What's that about? I mean, I know it's like you throw an error, but I have never mm-hmm. designed my own um, function that throws an error. I've never done that. Like, what's that about? Sure. So um, I, I just did this the other day. I sort of like was looking at a design. I had to make this call. Um, I had this function. I don't want to return an optional. Like this function, it, it, it was a function that generated an NSURL. And the NSURL initializers are all failable, meaning they might return an optional if you pass it like a string that doesn't convert to a URL. Right. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want this function to return a non-optional value. I wanted this function to always return uh, a, an NSURL value. Or an error. Or, um, or, or there had to be some kind of error behavior, right? Oh, okay, okay. I didn't, I didn't want that error behavior to necessarily be nil. Because um, then, then the callers are sort of like checking for nil, and that sort of doesn't express that the fact of like, hey, the input you gave me actually didn't generate a URL. Uh, it was, you just gave me some gibberish stuff that didn't map to a URL, so I failed. So you wanted to give the consumer more information. It sounds like about yeah. why it didn't work. Yeah, where like where a nil value sort of I felt like didn't reflect that. Okay. So what I did was I if. If uh, based on the input, if the, if the when the function goes to generate an NSURL, if it fails, I throw an error. That way, the behavior of the function is it either throws or it will definitely absolutely return a URL. Okay, and then do you create an error or how do you throw it? Yeah, uh, errors are super easy. You just create uh, an enum, and then you it's error type in Swift 2.2. I think it's error protocol it's just now. Just protocol, okay, error yeah. protocol. Um, and then, yeah, it's as simple as just making an enum and then giving a case with you know a descriptive name. So the enum conforms to error protocol. Yeah. Okay, and then you just have like different cases of your error. You could have like error one, error two, error like did not compute. Error right. Hammer yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you just pass in a string, or um, I I just I just made a case in the oh, symbol. Okay. The symbol name of the case was just oh, like nice. whatever hamburger. <laughs> okay. Cool. And then the signature of the function, like the function definition. Mm-hmm. So func um, function that throws an error. Mm-hmm. Um, you know whatever the arguments are. Yeah. And then returns a URL. Throws and then open close curly brace or it was I think it was it was funk it was like you know generate URL or something uh, your input which is like a string um, in this case it was the path and then uh, throws the, the keyword throws and then you do your little like arrow okay and then NSURL a non optional NSURL and then okay. your function body okay so the throws goes after the open close parentheses before the return value yeah. if there is one okay yeah that always yeah, gets I've never me. done that before. <laughs> 
Okay, cool. So that was optionals. That was something, you know, kind of difficult. Was there anything that just came super natural because or easy because of your previous programming experience, whether it was Objective-C or not? Um, I want to say, I don't know if it's a, I want to say protocols maybe. I mean, I know, I know it's maybe a weird answer, but like protocols have so much meaning in Swift now, whereas they were important in Objective-C, but now they're like, like we have protocol oriented programming in Swift now. So like sort of like knowing about them and sort of knowing, understanding that they are sort of like wrappers on how you use things kind of goes a long way in Swift in my opinion. So I really want to follow kind of what Apple is like urging us to do, right? So they have a whole talk called protocol oriented programming. They have like uh, making better apps with value types and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So then I'm working on my app, I'm busting out some code, and I start using protocols. And then I'm um, like, okay, I have a car, and the car has, let's say, um, I don't know, wheels. Mm-hmm. Or uh, what? what's a good example? Let's take the exact example I was working on. Fine. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a an account, and the account has a... Um, a policy, and this is insurance, and the policy could be a home policy, mm-hmm. or, or let's say it's a product, uh, and it could be a home policy product, or it could mm-hmm. be an auto policy product, right? So I have an account that has a product. But then the compiler is like, oh, y- y- I, you can't give me a home policy. I need a product or right, something like that, right? right? And then it's like, okay, well, let's go create a type alias on our protocol, right? Protocols mm-hmm. with the, associ- or I'm sorry, so- associated type. Right. Let's go create a protocol with associated type. So then I'm like, oh, okay, cool, I solved the problem. And then I'm working. And then the compiler is like, um, this can only be used as a generic constraint because it has self or, <laughs> right? And like, there's a really good talk by Alexis Alex Gallagher. Gallagher yeah. right? <laughs> I'm going to link to that. Like, just, I don't know if I explained everything to you, but it sounds like you get sort of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, where are we right now with this? Like, are we, oh, is it still just a different mindset or is it fully not fleshed out or what's going on? Like, I, I actually, I got lunch with Alexis Gallagher at DubDub and oh, wow. he mentioned he talked to some of the Swift engineers and I guess like they're trying to make it um, more friendly to use. Um, and right now it's weird. Uh, but I think it's just sort of part, part of the answer is it's just a limitation of like, does of like time to develop and like, that's not, that feature just not done yet. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I would say for that, that my biggest, he helped me understand like the biggest thing that was like my mental roadblock. And it was, uh, as it, as it works now, it's compile time polymorphism, meaning, um, you can change the interface of things and, but you know, this at, 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 um, compile time. Um, I don't know if that's the best description. Yeah, no, 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 that's great. It, it, at least it makes me feel hopeful for the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, uh, so it's already past our beautiful hour, and I just want to be able to talk with you so much more. So we'll definitely have you on the podcast again. I really look forward to meeting you in person. Maybe you can come up, yeah. come to the meetup. I know we talked about possibly doing a meetup together. Um, but before we go, let's do a couple, uh, a couple things. So where can people contact you online? Yes, I am. I'm Josh Avant on Twitter, J O S H A V A N T. Uh, my website's, uh, I am, I am Um, and feel free to send me an email, Josh at I am Awesome. And I'll have all that information in the show notes. So I actually want to do two things because, I don't know. I just feel really good right now. I want to get this information from you. So 
the the first is like what do you think makes a good iOS developer? And mm-hmm. um, you know, the second I'll leave for last. So okay. what do you think makes a good iOS developer? Just like, I don't know, one or two things. So to me, the Apple the Apple ecosystem is like an onion that you can just keep unraveling and unraveling and unraveling. There's just layer after layer after layer after layer. Um, and I'm still five years in, I'm still doing this. I'm like, each framework is its own little onion. You can just unravel and unravel and unravel. So I think a good iOS developer is somebody who uh, likes unraveling these onions, uh, likes, like sort of looks at a new framework and gets excited about like, all right, I'm going to start at the top. I'm going to drill down, drill down, drill down. I have NS and below that I have core foundation and then I can just keep going and going and going. And like, there's so many APIs, there's so much to discover. So I think a good iOS developer is just like, eager to learn all of the frameworks that Apple provides us and gives us. Wow, so good. You're speaking to the <laughs> choir for sure. I mean, that's one of the things I get really excited about is all this new stuff. I mean, if only there were enough like time and, I know. and ideas <laughs> to be inspired to like create. And Oh, man, that's great. What would you say to, to someone right now who's like maybe they're just starting out or they've been studying for a little while and they're, I don't know, they're just like wondering if they should keep going at it or they're getting like, um, they, they need a little bit more fo- motivation. Like, what would you say? Like, why, why should they keep going? Um, they should keep going because you're like, it's just, it's such an, you have to sort of resonate with the feeling of making, of making and of making something and that something helps or produces value or gives, makes somebody smile or makes somebody excited or like connects a person to a person like, you know, like Facebook or something. Yeah. Um, so, so if that resonates with them. Yeah. So, so to that end and like getting, like getting going on new things is tough. So like try to focus on making things that make you smile or make you excited or like, like who cares if you show it to your fiance or your parents or your friends and they're like, this is stupid. Like if it makes you stoked and makes you so happy, like do it and just keep doing it. And then like eventually you'll, you'll figure out a way to sort of like scale your abilities to like make more stuff for the broader market. But at first focus on yourself and focus on like what you want for only you and make it your thing and like get yourself excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what I did when I was uh, first learning out. I just had a passion project and that really kept me going. Thank you so much for that. Okay, final, last question, last (laughs) parting question. Hit me. One piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Um, Get involved in the community. Uh, Hit up meetups. Get on, definitely get on Twitter. Twitter seems to be for whatever reason, the social media platform that iOS developers have gravitated towards. Uh, get out there. Uh, Swift, everybody everybody is new to Swift still. Objective-C was around for 20 years. Um, so there's a lot of folks out there that have been doing it forever, but like we're all newbies at Swift. Uh, by and large, everybody I've talked to has just been so nice and so helpful and so awesome. So like get out there, talk. People are friendly. They don't bite. Uh, so make some friends. That's great. <laughs> all right. So, Josh Avant, thank you so much for coming on the show Thank you, Garrick. Thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, your story with us from, you know, finding this Commodore at your grandparents' house in Virginia (laughs) to, you know, modding your Xbox and building websites with PHP and getting into hardware and studying it in, you know, college and then getting a job at Apple and moving all the way out here to California <laughs> and yeah, working at Apple and then eventually like working with startups and yeah, getting into iOS development and, and here you are now. We didn't, I didn't even learn. How did you end up in LA? I don't know. Like, how did you end up here? 
Uh, in search of warm weather and a nice beach. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, we're, we're so happy to have you. And yeah, so thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And I look forward to talking to you again. Ditto. Thanks for having me, Garrett. I had a great time. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.